Well, several years ago, there was a 13-year-old boy who fell into a sewer system in central Los Angeles. He fell while playing with other kids in a local park. Uh, unknowingly, they were playing over the top of a rickety old entrance to this sewer system made of old wooden planks. Now, this boy, he was sent plummeting eight metres into a dark, dirty and watery torrent below, which swept him away immediately. And all the other children playing with him lost sight of him. They lost sound of him immediately. And so they ran to their uh, adults nearby who promptly called for the emergency services. Now, this triggered a huge search for this kid uh, within the labyrinth of the Los Angeles sewer system. The boy, he was swept away in total darkness in a grimy and a filthy place which could have easily proved fatal for anyone caught in its current. Now, as part of the emergency services search for this boy, uh, they lowered cameras onto little kind of rafts, these little flotation devices into the sewer, and it managed to capture this picture. It's a bit hard to see because it's a bit bright there, but I've circled in red uh, a side of the tunnel where you can see an arc. This is where the boy had painted on the wall as he was being swept along with his hand where he was going. He had no idea what he was doing. He was simply trying to brace himself. But as he was being carried along, he left this ark, which people identified and said, this is where the boy must be. He must be close. Now, in today's passage, Matthew reminds us that we are a people living in darkness. We're a people living in filth and rottenness, being swept away. We're a people that are living in the land of the shadow of death just like this boy was. But as we'll soon see, there is hope. There's hope of a light that breaks into this darkness, but we'll get to that a little later on. So if you have your outlines there, we're going to start at point one. Uh, Jesus preaches repentance as we approach the Sermon on the Mount. So if you have your Bibles, it's a good idea to keep these open uh, here in the second half of chapter four. Now, we're going to start not at the beginning of today's passage, but we're going to start with a bang in the middle of the passage, because I want us to unpack very quickly uh, Jesus' first big sermon. Uh, He proclaims this uplifting and encouraging sermon with these words, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Repent, turn from your wicked ways, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. Now, these words from our Lord, these words are not original. If you have been following along the Night Church podcast, we've been going through the introduction to Matthew's Gospel, Uh, you would have heard a sermon on this from Reich. He would have highlighted that another man once preached these words. So believe it or not, if this sermon were an academic paper submitted to QTC, uh, Jesus' words, they'd be flagged on the system for plagiarism. Why? Why? because they're identical to the words of John the Baptist back in chapter 3, verse 2. Jesus' sermon is a cut and paste of John's famous sermon, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven has come near. We're meant to see these words of Jesus. We're meant to see the similarities or the identical nature of them, in fact, and realize that he is continuing the ministry of John, which is actually the ministry of the Messiah, which John had prepared the way for. And now Jesus is here, he's the real deal, and he gives the exact same sermon, repent. 
Now, I'm not going to give us a full sermon on repentance. Um, I'm not going to go through this idea in great detail. And one of the reasons for this is because Reich, our student minister, did a fantastic job of this a couple of weeks ago. And that's available for all of you guys to listen to if you want something pretty hard-hitting about repentance. But I do think a a brief definition of this word is important uh, to dispel some of the common myths that some of you may have uh, regarding this idea. You see, biblical repentance, uh, contrary to what some might think, it's not feeling sorry about yourself. It's not feeling sorry about your sin. It's not being sorry even for what you've done. It's not regretting something that you may have done wrong or regretting something that you should have done that you didn't. Rather, the, the literal definition of repentance is a turning around. It's a changing of direction, right? It's, it's a U-turn. It's not just saying you're sorry for falling into that sexual sin again and again or saying you're sorry for constantly downloading those illegal movies and music. Rather, it's, it's taking the hard drive and smashing it and saying, I will never do this again. It's not saying I'm sorry for working so late every single day and missing family dinners. It's not saying, oh, I'm sorry for, for missing church week in, week out, because that job is just asking so much of me right now. It's killing me. Rather, it's seeking to prioritize the things of God and perhaps make some incredibly tough decisions to let go of the things which are regularly veering you from the kingdom of heaven. So it's not just a feeling of being bad. It's not just a, a sorry Rather, it's a change in direction, an active decision to turn around. So Jesus preaches, repent. He preaches, turn your life around, uproot the thing that's causing you to stumble, because the kingdom of heaven is near. Uh, Some of your translations will say, at hand, meaning it's kind of right here on your doorstep. And the reality is, it is. When Jesus comes, this is the coming of the kingdom. But there is a little problem You see, we we can't really repent all that well. And a lot of our repentance, it's so terrible that we need to repent of our poor repenting. You see, we're sitting in darkness. We're being swept along in the land of the shadow of death. And so while we're called by Jesus to repent, to turn away from anything that's keeping us from turning towards the kingdom of heaven, to repent of anything that's causing us to veer from the kingdom of heaven, We need help with this. We need dramatic help with this. We need a light that cuts in and exposes the darkness. A light that shows us how sinful, dirty and filthy we really are. But also, we need a light that demonstrates how much more powerful the Word of God is. And so what I want to do is I want to draw us... Uh, to draw our attention to Matthew's examples of repentance, uh, the power of the Word of God, uh, because in the genius of this gospel, Matthew does actually give us a few kind of clever examples hidden in today's passage of repentance. And it comes in the very next verse. So we've been looking at Jesus' sermon in verse 17. If you follow from verse 18 onwards, the very next thing that happens in this passage is we see four fishermen drop everything that they're doing They leave behind everything. They turn around from what they are doing and they follow Jesus. As Christ speaks, Matthew demonstrates that it has the power to change lives. Because these fishermen, they they turn around from their jobs and their careers. They turn around from everything they were once doing and turn towards Jesus. 
Now, these guys, they, they repent in a really literal sense. Like, you can almost picture them spinning 180. But amazingly, I think... What Matthew's trying to get at here is that the power doesn't lie in their own strength. The emphasis isn't necessarily in what they're doing, but rather the emphasis is on the power of the call of Jesus. He speaks, and they're instantly changed. Now, to be fair, uh, the text isn't talking about repenting from our sins or anything to that effect. Um, So in in this context here, he's not asking uh, Andrew and Peter to repent of their sins, but I think Matthew's simply pointing out to his readers in kind of a parable sense, this is what repentance looks like. It's a turning around, it's a dropping everything. This is the nature of repentance. That is the power of God's calling to drop everything and turn towards Christ. So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 18. We're going to read from there. Matthew writes, As Jesus was walking beside the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew. They were casting a net into the lake, for they were fishermen. Come follow me, said Jesus, and I will send you out to fish for people. At once they left their nets and followed him. That's instant obedience right there. Now, if you continue, if you continue reading on, a very similar thing happens with James and John as well. Uh, These guys, they don't only just leave their fishing gear, their tackle, their rods and whatever else they had. They didn't actually have rods, they had nets and other things, but contextualise, make it relevant for us, right? They left their boat, but they also left their father Zebedee, the poor man. But they left everything, including family, to come and follow Jesus. And what this shows us is Jesus' call is powerful. His word accomplishes what it sets out to do follow me, and they follow. Now, on a quick uh, side note, some people tend to be weirded out by the phrase in verse 19, where Jesus says, follow me, and I will send you out to fish for people. kind of seems strange, like people aren't in the ocean, you can't really fish them. But if you give it a couple of seconds thought, it's really not that uh, confusing. You see that to go out and fish for people, this is just another way of saying that to go and catch people, to go and gather people for God's kingdom. They're to gather people for Jesus. And Jesus here, he's using terms and ideas that these guys would understand. It's like if Jesus went up to an electrical engineer in his day, you see where this is going, and said, follow the circuit that I create, and I will turn you into a current which positively charges people for Jesus. Now that I've said that out loud, it's really not all that good, is it? You get the idea. He's contextualizing his sermon. He's calling them with words that they get. Right? He's using idioms that relate to their profession to call them into a new life of making disciples. Now, this is a pretty, <coughs> a pretty great com- uh, commission, if you ask me, to go and catch people for Jesus, to bring the power of the word of God to turn people back to repentance, to go and make people disciples for Christ. In fact, I think this commissioning of them in this chapter is so great that you could kind of pencil in a line from here to the great commissioning right at the end of the gospel. Uh, If you know the end of Matthew, Jesus famously tells his disciples to go and make disciples of all nations. There's a sense in which this call here is the beginning of that commission. He's saying, you are going to go out and catch people for me. Now, I think this is interesting because if you know Matthew's gospel, 
uh, if you know what he's doing here, you'd, you'd realize that a lot of people have stereotyped him as kind of the Jewish gospel. What he's writing is for a Jewish audience. He himself is a Jewish man. But things may not be quite as clear-cut as they seem when we start to think about all the nations, the aim of the good news here. And this brings us to point two. This repentance is for all nations. Now, when I was growing up, uh, I used to think, believe it or not, that peas were filled with mashed potato. Uh, I'm not joking, and I'd always get upset when mum gave me the peas that didn't have mash in them. If I could taste them and go, something's not quite right, I'd bite one in half and go, no, these are filled with that icky, gooey green stuff. I wanted the mashed potatoes. I wanted the good stuff. And it wasn't until later on that I realised that peas never actually had mashed potato in them. In fact, I have no idea why I thought that. It might have been just the way they were cooked sometimes. But I'd convinced myself that these peas were one thing when, in fact, they were something entirely different. Now, the Gospel of Matthew, it is often stereotyped as the kind of quote-unquote Jewish gospel. Written by a Jewish man for Jewish people, and it is certainly true in many ways. It's a gospel aimed at showing the good news of Jesus shining in the darkness, the arrival of their Messiah that they've long awaited for. But I want to argue that it's not even in the slightest the gospel exclusively for the Jews. Yes, people will point out uh, a few things in this gospel. I'll I'll very quickly run through some of them for you now. Uh, The phrase kingdom of heaven, for example. Uh, It's a bit unfamiliar to us if we're used to Mark and Luke. They use the term kingdom of God. But Matthew here, he's addressing some of the Jewish sensibilities about using the name of God. Uh, People also point out that Matthew's rightly portraying Jesus as these key Jewish figures from history, but the new, bigger, better version, the new Abraham, the new Moses, the new King David, these great men of the Jewish faith. Yes, Matthew's far more excited than any other gospel about prophetic fulfillment even. Uh, Far more, he cites around 16 examples of direct prophetic fulfillment in his gospel, more than any other gospel we have. And on and on and on we could go. So you can see it's directed at a Jewish audience. But we mustn't ever think that just because Matthew was a Jewish man writing for a Jewish audience, that somehow this is the Jewish gospel. Uh, It's not. In fact, I want to argue that it's far from it. You see, Matthew does a bunch of very strange things in this account of the good news, things that would have been very peculiar, especially if you were one of his Jewish audience members. Uh, Let me give you some examples of this. So sprinkled throughout his gospel, kind of like a, a seasoning on a delicious lamb roast, sprinkled all throughout his gospel are these hints that the Messiah's teaching, the power of the Messiah's word, the light shining in the darkness, was always for all nations. Firstly, the genealogy. Yes, it begins with Abraham. It doesn't go back to Adam like you'd see in Luke's gospel. But it has a little seasoning of Gentiles as well. You see Rahab the prostitute getting saved. She's the one that lived in the walls of Jericho as they came tumbling down, but hers didn't. I'll let you figure that out later. You have this woman, she she risked risked her life in order to save uh, these Hebrew spies. Later on in the genealogy, you have Ruth the Moabite. uh, And there are explicit commands about Moabites in Deuteronomy, uh, almost implying that they're never, ever to be part of Israel. Secondly, in Matthew's Gospel, 
we see these magi, these, these wise men, right? These famous guys that laid their treasures at Jesus' feet. It's Matthew's way of sprinkling a bit of pagan astrology <laughs> into the genealogy, not the genealogy, the, the gospel itself. These men, they followed the star and they eventually came to worship Jesus and they are included in this story. Thirdly, we have the centurion in chapter 8. Uh, this guy, he has a servant who's suffering terribly and he comes to Jesus and begs for healing. And Jesus compliments him in front of everyone with these incredible words and I think this is worth actually looking uh, into here. Jesus says, Truly I tell you, I haven't found anyone in Israel with such great faith. He's saying, this guy gets it. This pagan, this Gentile, and you, Israel, don't. I say to you that many will come from the east, like the wise men, and the west, and they will take their places at the feast with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. People will come from all over. There's a sense in which all nations are slowly being gathered. But... Jesus continues to this centurion. He says, but the subjects of the kingdom, right, the insiders, those that, that thought they didn't need to repent because they're already in, right, they're part of the bloodline, they know they're included. They, Jesus says, will be thrown outside into darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. It, it's so harsh, it almost feels anti-Semitic, which is really odd for a gospel written by a Jewish man for a Jewish audience. But what's Matthew doing? He's championing the gospel to all nations. He's giving a harsh critique of the insiders, as the case of the centurion. He's welcoming all the nations, slowly opening it up. Now, there's plenty more of examples of these in Matthew's Gospel. You have the Canaanite woman in Matthew 15, uh, the Roman guards after Jesus' crucifixion. They are the first to acknowledge that Jesus is the Son of God. There's, there's all these little sprinklings all splattered throughout Matthew's Gospel of the outsiders coming in. There's an inversion happening in this Gospel, right? An inversion where the outsiders are coming in and the insides, insiders are being thrown out to some degree. Now, You'd already see this inversion somewhat if you were paying attention to Steve's uh, Sermon on the Mount series. Uh, all of those, you know, blessed are this, for they shall do that. Everything is kind of backwards in, in the Sermon on the Mount. So just because this is the Jewish gospel doesn't mean that we should be naive into thinking that this, is, this good news is exclusively for the Jewish people, that Matthew is kind of the gospel that we can sort of pass on to go to the other ones. I think this is a misunderstanding of the nature of the good news and a misunderstanding of the nature of Matthew's gospel itself. Now, to be clear, uh, yes, his gospel is directed at a Jewish audience, but I think what he's doing is a scathing critique, a heavy-handed warning to his own people that the light has come. And it's those who repent. It's those who turn towards the things of the kingdom of heaven who are truly inheritors of the promise. And this is where we move on to our last point. Uh, Jesus went to Galilee as the light that exposes the darkness. I've actually added a little sub-point here. We need the light to repent, because I realise I use repent in the first two points and kind of string it all together. That might be a better way of seeing it. We need the light to repent. 
Now, as we talk about uh, Matthew's gospel to some degree being this Jewish gospel, the elephant in the room at this stage is that Jesus' main part of his early ministry is nowhere near where you'd expect a Jewish Messiah to be giving it. He's not in the holy city of Jerusalem, which is the little red circle on the map here. Now, if you read from verse 12, the the beginning of our passage, we see that after Jesus hears that John the Baptist was put into prison, he withdrew to Galilee. This is an important place to know where it is. Uh, It's the big red circle at the top of the map there. Miles and miles and miles from the epicenter of religiosity in their land. Right, miles from the holy temple, miles from where you'd go to see a Messiah. And to Matthew, this is significant. Uh, he actually sees this as a fulfillment of prophecy. He speaks about these strange lands called Zebulon and Naphtali. If you notice that in verse 15, there's, there's a quote there from Isaiah the prophet. And he says, this is where Jesus went. And if I were to, to change the map just slightly into the, the 12 tribes allocations, you can see that Zebulon and Naphtali, it's a little purple one and the orange one, that's exactly where Galilee is. And that's where Jesus ends up on the map. It's the exact same place as Galilee. So Matthew is seeing Jesus ministering in Galilee as a fulfillment of this prophecy, but particularly a prophecy of the people living in darkness seeing a great light. On those living in the land of the shadow of death, a light has dawned. And he's saying this is where it's happening. He's essentially saying these people in Galilee... They are the ones in darkness. Now, if you were to look up the quote from Isaiah, uh, the words he uses to describe uh, being in darkness is a bit different. Matthew kind of changes it slightly uh, into the words literally sitting. So where you were once walking in darkness, you're now sitting in darkness. Matthew's saying this darkness is so heavy, so thick, that it actually makes you immobile. You're almost resigned to the fact that you're living in the land of the shadow of death. And this is the land of the Gentiles, these pagans, essentially. Now, there were a few Jewish people there. We read about them earlier. You had Peter and Andrew, James and John. But I think to understand who these people were to the Jewish elites back in Jerusalem, uh, we need to understand what Galilee was considered to be. Uh, This place, it was considered spiritually and politically, uh, and a lot of this is to do with its rich history, which I won't get into here, but if you like, you can have a look it up. Um, I was going to compare it to uh, Ipswich, um, but I won't do that, even though I just did, um, because this place is a bit more upper class than Ipswich. Uh, If you were from Galilee, though, the Jewish people didn't see you in a very hot light. Um, In fact, you spoke differently to people. You had a different accent. Uh, How do we know this? Because later on in the gospel, when Peter denies Jesus three times, someone sees Peter, this is Matthew 26, 73, someone sees Peter and says, surely you're one of them, that is a Galilean. Your accent gives you away. So they didn't only have kind of a, a reputation of being slack with the law and being kind of in political and spiritual darkness and all of this stuff, but they even spoke differently. They, they were a completely different class of people to these Jewish elites. And yet despite all of these things, this is where Jesus decided to begin his ministry. 
Instead of going down to Jerusalem, he starts his ministry and he even gives his famous Sermon on the Mount to a bunch of people up in Galilee who were considered living in darkness. And in many senses, again, this is Matthew's prelude to the Great Commission, right? To go and make disciples of all nations because he's going to where the nations are up in Galilee. A light shining in the darkness on those living in the land of the shadow of death. A light has now dawned. Now, the young boy I mentioned at the beginning of the sermon uh, who fell into the Los Angeles sewer system, you'd be glad to hear that he was found uh, after a 12-hour grueling search for him. Uh, When the emergency services, when they saw this mark on the wall, uh, somehow they determined that it was a fresh mark, that it indicated he was definitely nearby. So all the local sanitation workers quickly ran to all the manholes and they were lifting them up, calling out, looking for this boy. And you don't have to imagine too hard what it would have been like for this young kid to have the bright light from the street above pierce into the darkness, revealing his rescuers, revealing those who have come to his salvation. But there's another aspect to this rescue which I think is extremely relevant to everything we've heard today. And it's to do with Jesus' call for us to repent, the light exposing the darkness. You see, this boy, when the light shone into where he was, he would have had the full extent of his own filthiness exposed. He would have known just how dirty he really was after being down there for so long. In fact, when he was rescued, uh, paramedics actually had to clean uh, filth and waste out of his eyes and out of his nasal cavities with saline. He was completely filthy with human excrement and all kinds of other things inside and out. And so in this situation, I can almost tell you what he didn't do when that manhole was opened. I don't think he sat at the bottom of the sewer and said, you know what, I really need to get myself clean before I can come out of here. You know, I really need to give myself a a scrub. Gee, I'm a bit filthy. I don't want people seeing me like this, so maybe I'll just stay down here a bit longer and try and clean myself up. And even if he did, even if he did think, you know, I need to make myself scrubbing with his hands would have made even the slightest difference to his current state. He simply had to accept the state of his life, knowing that he was filthy, knowing that he was lucky to be alive after living in the land of the shadow of death, humbly accepting the rescuer's offer of salvation. And I wonder for us where the light has shone in the darkness. Does the state of our sin cause us to run to God? Or do we flee from him, kind of hoping to clean up our act a little bit first? Can I encourage you that that just like being trapped in a dark sewer for 12 hours, being swept along by the various torrents of sewage, there is no amount of scrubbing that you can do to clean up your life that will make you presentable for God. None. Like this boy, we have to simply cling to our rescuer, Jesus, in all of our mess, in all of our brokenness, in all of our unrepentedness, throwing ourselves onto him in trust that he will give us the means and the will to repent, that he will give us the ability to turn around and trust despite our own sin. And so I want to say, if you're sitting here today uh, thinking that perhaps you don't need Jesus or on the other end of the spectrum that you're too far gone for Jesus to accept you, 
I want to say, come and repent. Turn towards Jesus. Come to the light. Yes, it will expose the darkness in your life. It will expose the depths of your sin. In fact, I think a sign of Christian maturity as you get older and older and deeper and deeper into the faith is not this idea that you've somehow leveled up and become a better Christian, but I think it's you realize more and more just how far short you fall when you compare yourself to Jesus. So this light will reveal the depth of your sin and it will continue to do so, your inability to deal with your own unrighteousness. It will show you how amazing you are at screwing everything up between your relationship with God, but even between your neighbor. But what it also will do is save you. It will change you slowly. You'll begin to see the beauty of Christ and you'll begin to really understand what he has done for you and how great this is. There is a painful thing going through the valley of the shadow of death, having the light expose the darkness, and yet this is the very thing that saves us. The word of God is the very thing that causes us to repent. So as I finish up, how about I pray and ask the power of God's word to be at work in our lives to help us to throw ourselves onto Christ in repentance and faith. Father God, we thank you for Matthew. We thank you that he wrote these words and actions down of our Lord and Saviour Jesus. Well, we thank you that in the lead up to the Sermon on the Mount, we see these examples of people turning their lives around but more than that, an example of the power of the calling of your Son. Lord, I pray that you would help us to heed that call. Lord, please expose the darkest places of our lives. Help us not to hide anything from you, but to show you everything and to run to you as the security that we need. Lord, I pray that if we are scrubbing ourselves clean, trying to make ourselves right before you, that you would help us to stop and to turn to Jesus to see him as the only thing that can wash us clean. And I pray for those of us who are still living in darkness, who haven't been exposed to the light, who maybe don't understand the depths of our own sin, that you would expose it. And Lord, here at KPC, I pray that we would be a community that can confess our sins to one another. Help us to be a community of love and forgiveness, that we can be vulnerable, and that our pride can be in what Christ has done for us, and not what we have done for ourselves. In this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.